Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumi, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception to acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Emerging Franchise Brands podcast. On today's show, I have franchise attorney Harold Kessenbaum, who works with Spadia Liana. And Harold, 46 years in franchising. How are you today? I'm great, Frank. It's great having, great to have you on the show. Harold, let's just kind of warn the warn the audience right now, both New York guys. You know, my New York accent over the last 25 years has kind of dissipated, but once I get back talking to a New Yorker and we get like, you know, we get the passion going, that's it. You know, it's gonna come out. So I just gotta sure. I gotta warn everybody. All right. Well, Harold, again, it's great having you on the show. Um, I just want to kind of kick things off with, first of all, your background. We, I always say when I interview somebody that, you know, franchising found them. I had heard that and it just, it, it works. And I'm curious, did you set out when you went to law school, like I'm going to be a franchise attorney? No, absolutely not. Franchising found me. Okay. How did it find you? I, I worked for a small law firm in Manhattan, uh, two guys. And they had one client that was a franchise company. Now I was at a law school two years, so I, the only thing I knew about franchising was going into a restaurant and eating in, in, in McDonald's or Burger King. Right. So he said, "Look, I need you to learn about franchising because I'm too busy. I do other things. So I need you to learn about it." Now, in 1977, you didn't have Google. I couldn't Google franchising and get all the information I needed. <laughs> so I actually had to read a book. I read a bunch of books. So, so I, I read a bunch of books. I went to a bunch of IFA, and I didn't know what IFA meant until I got there, uh, seminars. And I really liked it. And I, I tell you, I liked it because it was more business than it was legal. And I had I had a penchant for business rather than being just a lawyer. Because in the two, two years I was out of law school, I did trust in the states. I did, it was boring. I, I hated it. Right. So I get to this and I find out, oh, franchise, wow, look at this. And I just took to it. In four years, I learned what I needed to learn. I went out on my own in 1981. It was great. Wow. And franchising has changed a whole lot since 1981, right? Oh, you bet it has. <laughs> it always comes down to franchise unit economics, right? That hasn't changed. So the fundamentals of being successful in franchising still the same. However, the tools and resources and laws and everything has dramatically, regulation has dramatically changed over the 46 years, right? Absolutely. And, and you know what? Social media has played a tremendous role in franchising, particularly in franchise sales. Mm. Because back in the day, and you remember, it was the Wall Street Journal or the Sunday Times or a trade show. And that was it. Right. They don't exist. Trade shows are dying. Nobody uses print media. Everything is social. It's social media has revolutionized franchise marketing. 
Yes. You know, back in the 90s, I used to pick up Entrepreneur Magazine and right. I used to go to the back of the magazine quickly to see what franchise opportunities were there because I wanted to be first and there was nobody who had done sports at that time. And right. I'd go there every month. I'd go flipping back in those pages, but that's where you look for franchise opportunities. You go to Entrepreneur Magazine. That's right. You know, there was many, many years ago, I was at one of the franchise conferences and it's when it was like the dawn of social media. You're mentioning this. And the topic was, is social media here to stay or is it a fad? Do you remember that? I remember. Yeah. And it was like, it was actually like a legit conversation in the franchise conference. It was like, it, should you even bother with this thing called Facebook and LinkedIn? Right. And, right. And, then, and now TikTok and, right. all, and Instagram and all that other stuff. Right. And it created a spirited debate back then because people really questioned whether this social media thing was really going to last or was it kind of like the dot coms that blew up in the early, you know, 2000s. How does social media play, since you, you mentioned this, I'm curious on how does social media play a challenging role for you as a franchise attorney? Is it because it's used in a, a way where it could violate the item 19 and stuff like that? It's, it's, well, it's really kind of uncontrollable. Right. Because you can't tell a client, you're not registered in a particular state, so you got to stay out of that state. The social media has no boundary. Right. There are no state lines. So you go out on Facebook, it's all, it's all, it's in, the, it's in the world, okay? Not just in one state. So the client has to be really careful that it, it's not going to filter into one of the state registrations and you're going to violate the state law by having advertising in that state. And, and, and item 19, they got to be careful what they say on social media mm -hmm. because it's not, it's not something you can hide. It's out there. Right. Well, let's let's take this back. I want to start more from uh, early on. So our audience is a mix of founders of emerging brands. They have a few units, probably less than 50 units for sure. I also have other founders that are excited to be, they listen to the show because they want to franchise their concept. So I want to start there with the, the founders they're starting out. So when you get somebody who calls you up and says, Harold, I want to franchise my company. I need an FDD or they don't even know they need an FDD. Right? They don't even know what that is. Okay. So why don't you share, like you get a founder that says, Harold, I want to franchise my business. What do I need to do? What do you tell them? Well, we, we have a very robust uh, SEO firm and I get, I probably get four or five of those leads a week. Wow. And some of them, and again, here, here's, here's the social media, the internet. Some of them know exactly what an FDD is and they know what the basics are because they've done some research. Others haven't got a clue. Mm. So basically on the call, I have to explain to them Franchising is a way of growing your business, obviously, but it's a very regulated business. It's an industry that's regulated by the federal government and by 15 different states. So you have to have certain documentation because some of them, they're already telling me, oh, I saw, I saw five licenses. I said, oh. oh, really? So tell me what, what exactly you did. Oh, yeah, I charged with you. I let them use my name and I trained them. Well, guess what? That, that's a franchise, no matter what you call it. Right. So at the end of the day, they don't even know they're franchising. They've already sold three units. So you have to, I have to sit down and, 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 and what I recommend, and I'm not plugging my book. I wrote a book a number a bunch of years ago, how to, how to, how to franchise your business. So I tell them, why don't you go on Amazon and buy my book mm -hmm. and you can see exactly what to do so you don't mess up, you don't screw up and sell illegally, particularly if you sell in a registration state, then you really have a problem. Right. So, so the call goes, you know, here's what you need and here's what it costs. 
And you know, you hear silence because they don't realize that it does cost money to do this. Sure. Magically snap your fingers and oh, I'm a franchise. Right. Well, no, guess what? It does cost money. And and it can cost anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to get into the game. Right. And that's just to open your doors. Right. That's before marketing. Right, right, which is right. going to take a lot more money than we all think when we start out. I speak first firsthand experience there. So just for the folks that are listening, an FDD is a franchise disclosure document. It's the offering circular. It's the, the legal document you need to have done before you franchise your concept. And you can... Obviously, after you have an FDD, you can be in non-registration states. And as we know, you mentioned there's about a dozen or so states where you actually have to file for their approval in those states to do business. But let's, um, let's talk about the people that are inadvertently franchising. What is the criteria that defines somebody that is a franchise? Well, the definition, except in New York, is pretty simple. If you charge a fee... You allow them to use your intellectual property, your name, and you provide services like you train them, you sell them products, or you give them a territory. That's a franchise. New York is a little unique. Their franchise law is different. You only need two, a fee and the intellectual property. And that gets a lot of people in trouble. Because, you know, there are, there are lawyers out there who think, oh, you can do a license agreement and not have the third prong of the definition. And you're okay. In, in 35 states, you might be. In New York, you wouldn't be. So mm-hmm. there are many companies that come into New York and illegally sell a franchise because they don't realize that you only need a fee and, and the name. Mm. They're a franchise. Do some people prefer to license over franchising as a way of thinking that they can avoid further regulation? I sit down on the phone with these people and I explain to them, I said, look, you want to make money. Okay, you want to take the upfront fee, you want them to use your name. But if you're not going to train them, if you're not going to teach them how to run the business, they're going to ruin your brand. Right. So you're going to have to train them. Ergo, they're a franchise. So take the notion of a license and throw it out the window because it doesn't exist. No, you're right. So there are there are quite a number of people who have inadvertently franchised, right? There's about 4,000 franchisors, right, that are out there? Yeah, I think there are maybe, I think it's up to almost five now for the last count I saw. Do you have any idea how many are illegally franchising above that number? Probably a lot, because a lot of them try to cut corners. They don't go to the right lawyer. They do things that they shouldn't do. They don't do their research, and they want to save money. Look, in my book, one of the the, the, the three ways for, for a person who wants a franchise to fail mm-hmm. is if they're under capital and if you don't have enough money to do the legal work, you shouldn't even think about franchising. You're not ready yet. Right. So they want to say, you know what? I don't need a lawyer. Let me do it this way. And they try to cut corners and they do it illegally. And then it gets them into more trouble. Of course. And the other thing I would recommend just as somebody that has gone through this before is you never hire an attorney that says, I can do franchising versus somebody who's a franchise attorney. It's like saying, I can play shortstop versus I am a shortstop. Those are two very distinct differences. Well, you know, we, we call those people dabblers uh-huh. and they don't know what they're doing. They, they've maybe done some franchisee work, okay, which is totally different. Right. They have no idea what they're doing, but they, they're not smart enough to say, look, go to an expert. And that's what gets people in trouble. So now let's uh, let's transition a little bit more now to the emerging franchisor 
that already has the FDD. And I'm curious on how often do you recommend that a franchise will really take a look at their FDD in crafting it and making changes? And what are some of the more popular changes you see uh, in the emerging franchise or space when they update their FDD? Well, first of all, I do get a lot of those. And, and a lot depends on who did their FDD initially. Right. right. And if it's a franchise attorney who's, who's done it before, it's usually fairly decent. But if they go to these, quote, packagers who say, oh, for $40,000, we'll do your FDD, we'll do your ops manual, we'll do everything. They wind up, you have to redo it because they're garbage. And they don't realize it because it's cheap. Right. Back in the day, item 19, almost nobody ever did an item 19. Now, the last I heard, 60% of franchisors mm -hmm. have an item 19. It's become a valuable selling tool. Now, you don't, now, legally, it's not required. The FTC hasn't come out, although it's been recommended for years. They've never said you have to have an item 19. So you don't need it. But if you don't have a bunch of franchisees out there who can, who can, validate the concept you should have an item 19 if you have any company owned stores it helps the sales process so i like to take a look at that we take a look at the franchise agreement how it was drafted i like to you know compliment lawyers who do a good job so if, if, if they've got a lawyer who's done a good job then there's not much you have to change sure but if it wasn't a lawyer who did it beware also, it sometimes is on the franchise worst side. So I had my my initial FDD it was actually called the UFOC, as you remember back in the day. Right. And That's I had right. mine crafted. And it was actually done by a really good franchise attorney. But when I came to you, it was because I had to make changes to my document because I was making changes to my system because truthfully, right. my company evolved and changed. I mean, even things down to like, you and I changed like territory size and minimum royalty amounts. But I was learning as a franchisor different things along the way. I could pull out my FDD and I can go item by item and say, we did this because this happened. And then I made this change because that happened. It is literally like story. I could take it almost like as a storybook on the changes we made. Um, you mentioned item 19. Now there might be a lot of people listening that don't know what that is. So share with everyone, look, we're 15 minutes into the conversation and item 19 already came up and it's the juiciest part of the document. So would you share what that is? Item 19 is financial performance. So if you have if you have company units, for example, that have been in business for more than a year, you can use the numbers that those stores have done in your in your document. We call it item 19, so that the buyer, the franchisee, sees the kind of numbers. You don't you, you can't guarantee that they'll do those numbers, but at least they get a picture of what a store can do. And there are different ways. Some some companies just do top line sales. Some do a full P and L, which I don't recommend. Some do gross sales less cost of goods in the restaurant business for example if you can do averages if you have a number of company stores now if you have franchisees you have to use the frame you have to do both you can't pick and choose you can't cherry pick and you can't put the best numbers in and leave the last the worst numbers out you got to put them all in so if you have if you're a system that's got you're already franchising and you have a few franchisees who have been business over a year and you have company stores you got to put them both in Right. You can't just put company stores in and leave the franchisees out. But I 19 becomes an important tool. And and most franchise marketing companies, you know, that do franchise sales, if you don't have an item 19, some of them won't even take you on as a client. Right. 
Right. And you're right. You know, when I had started, it was only about 20% of all franchisors that did an item 19. And I heard the same statistic as you about 60% now do. And it's probably also another reason because this just dramatic increase in franchisors using these outside franchise sales organizations, they need the help, right? They need the data because we all know what's the number one question that a potential franchisee ask is, how much, how, much money, money can I make? how much money can I make? And so item 19 sort of answers that question within the legal parameters of however we designed the data, right? And we have to do it in a very clear cut way that you're right. We can't just, in, just discriminately pull, uh, pull out the ones that aren't doing well, but we can be creative. For example, if we have full-time franchise owners versus only part-time franchise owner model, we could show the, fran- the full-time business model uh, the full-time um, franchisees and show the part-time and say, here's why you want to do it full-time. So like you said, you are using it as a sales tool, but it's all within the legal framework. And that's the beauty of having an experienced franchise attorney such as yourself, because as the entrepreneur, I'm going to want to do things a lot more wildly. And you're going to say, no. And you did that to me years ago. You're like, no, you can't say that. We can do this. And you would tell me to kind of stay within the guidelines. What are some of the trends? Are you seeing anything differently on how franchisors are using their FDD as a sales tool? You know, access to the FDDs are a lot easier now than we were back in the day. You know, back in the day, you had to go to the state to get a copy. Now they're, they're readily available. We have our firm has a unique software program where where disclosure is done online, and the franchisor doesn't have to send it out. Because in the old days, as you know, you had to bind it, send it out. I mean, it got very expensive. Okay, right. it, it cost a lot. You know, then they they went the FTC allowed electronic disclosure. Yes. that really changed the dynamics of of disclosure. Everybody's in, is allowed to do it online. They're allowed to sign online. It makes the process a lot easier and less expensive. So yeah, things have changed because of the of the internet and, and the electronic versions. Yeah, you're it's right. Much easier. I remember having it back in 2003, having to mail those out. There was a lot of FedExes that were going out every day. A lot of FedExes, a lot of photocopying. <laughs> a lot of photocopying. How many sections are there in the FDD altogether? It's 23. Right. And is there one particular or a couple of overlooked sections that you think that are overlooked by new franchisors that they're not putting enough of an emphasis on that would help them? You know, item seven is very important. That's the investment. And you really want to make sure you have the, the, the proper range. And that's why, you know, some of these brand new emerging brands that don't have units, it's very hard to, to calculate what the item seven is. And they use a broad range. But you can get into trouble if the range is too low or too high, primarily too high. Now, the, the, the pandemic changed a lot of a lot of item sevens because things got very expensive. So franchisors had to recalibrate item seven with the inflation that was going rampant, you know, two years ago. Sure. Cost of building a, a restaurant two years ago was during the pandemic was way more than it was in earlier years. Mm-hmm. They had to change item seven. And item seven also, there's one piece of it, I think that it was critical for us that you made sure that we didn't shortchange ourselves. And that was the working capital because every franchisor doesn't want to make it look so expensive. But how do I screw myself as the franchisor, right? Is I make the working capital amount too low. And if the franchisee has an experience where the number is too low, I can get myself in a lot of trouble. They all these, a lot of the brokers say, wait, wait a minute, item seven, look how high it is. The high end is too expensive. 
I'm saying, look, the client has to be protected. You don't know what use the restaurant industry for to build a restaurant in Manhattan is going to cost you significantly more than it would if you build in Nashville. Okay. This labor alone in New York City is ridiculous with the unions. So you've got to build in a, a cushion so that the franchisee is not surprised and then he doesn't turn you out to win. He comes with the X and it's triple X. And I want my money back. You know, you, you got to be careful. So you got to really, item seven is a very important section. But a lot of franchisors think things up and up, but they just Numbers Are there any common mistakes that you see of newer franchisors in their FDD? Item 19 aside, are there some other things that you, you know, you see this as, oh, that's a newbie that, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a typical mistake. You know, item six is important. All the fees that the franchisee has to pay once they're in business. Mm -hmm. You better make sure that you know what those fees are. Okay. Because that gets, that's very important because if all of a sudden there's a fee, a technology fee that you didn't put in my item six, and the franchisee says, wait a minute, I'm not paying that. It wasn't an item six. You have to eat it. So you want to make sure you put all the fees into item six that they're going to come up, that they're going to have to pay. Harold, that is, I think, spot on advice. Because I, if I recall, one of the things you had shared with me way back when is that even if I'm not doing something today, let's use a technology fee, put it in there because it's something that we may institute, but you can't call that back. Once the horse leaves the barn, you can't it's call gone. it back. Yeah, so put, right. it, put it in there early. It'll only work if you, if you do that and you miss it, then it's only going to be good for people coming in after. And all the ones who are in the system are, are freebies. Right. In fact, I think there was two particular things that we did this together that we didn't have in place when we first franchised was one, a national brand fund, but we had it in the document that we could, and we would communicate to the franchisees. It'd be like, you know what? We're going to wait till we got to X. I forgot the number. Let's say 20. We're going to wait till we get to 20 franchisees. Then we're going to start implementing the national brand fund because we don't want to start taking their money. When, you know, you have like one franchise, right? right? And the second one was a national convention fee because we knew that oh. was going to cost some significant dollars. And we didn't have a convention early on, but it was one of those things where we wanted to make sure it was in the document. So that's the other reason why you want to have a really experienced franchise attorney because they see what you don't because you've been there. You have other clients that have grown and I don't know That's that. That's right. That's right. And, and you're right about this convention because if you don't have it in there and you have a convention two years from now and you say, well, you got to pay $450. Oh, well, it wasn't in my FTD. I'm not paying. I think this goes back to the importance of having really good communication with the candidate and explain to them, here's what we have, here's why we have it in place, but we're not, you know, we're not implementing it right away. And it takes the advice of your attorney and takes the communication with the candidate and kind of bridging that together to making sure that you're able to sell the franchise concept. And you're, you're really, you're, you're telling a story. That's really what the FDD is, right? It's, it's a book. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically from A to Z on what you can expect when you buy the franchise. I've heard for years, uh, sort of two different schools of thought on this about using the FDD as a sales tool. Some people say it's not a sales tool at best. It's neutral. And I've heard the other school of thought of saying, no, it really is a sales tool that you can use. What, where do you sit on this? You know, as far as I'm concerned, it's still a legal document. Mm -hmm. And even with the plain language, I'm not sure how you could, you know, a pig is a pig. You can't put lipstick on a pig. It's still going to be a pig. <laughs> okay. So the, F, the FDD is going to be a legal document no matter what, how you think it's going to be a sales document. Right. I don't personally think it's a sales document at all. 
It puts the people who read it up to sleep, okay? When you ask the franchisee, did you read the FDB? 99% of them say, no, I let my lawyer do it. So they don't even know what it said. So if you think that it's actually, quote, a sales tool, I don't buy that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you, because I know there's two different schools of thought on that, of course. Let's segue out of documentation and talk about what is some of the legal trends in franchising that are most intriguing and maybe disturbing to you right now? Well, the biggest is joint employment. Yep. Now the NLRB is going back to the strict interpretation. I don't know if that's going to, through the court, if that's going to stick. But now you have to tell your franchise or clients in their ops manual, back in the day when you were doing it, you had a whole HR section. Mm-hmm. How do you fire, hire? You've got to take that out now. The franchise law can't get involved at all in the employment operations of the franchisee. They want to hire somebody. They want to fire somebody. Even if they ask you for your advice, you can't give them. But the law is essentially trying, the law is trying to be passed is essentially saying that no matter what you do, Mr. Franchisor, you are a joint that's, employer that's what, with the franchisee. That's, that's the interpretation. In California, they've changed it now, mm-hmm. but but the NORB is not, and we're going to see how that shakes out. That's part one. The other part that it looks like it's going to it's going to carve out is that they, they're they're outlawing non competes for employer employees, but there's going to be an ex- exemption for franchise or franchisees. So while a non-compete, if you were hire somebody and you put a non-compete, you can't compete. Not a, it's not going to be legal, but a franchisee who signs a franchise agreement where there's a non-compete, if they leave the system, that's, that's going to continue to be illegal. That is going to be a challenge. I, you know, I kind of wonder this whole joint employer thing. Uh, it's obviously not good for franchising. And it's being misinterpreted, this law, as they're not really thinking about the ramifications that it's going to be for franchise owners. Everybody gets hurt by this. Franchisors right. and franchisees. It's, it's, Everybody it's, gets hurt. It's a lose-lose situation. Do you think that potentially it may impact people from franchising their company? No, I don't think so. Because if the lawyer explains to them what they have to do, you know, the, the strict interpretation, I'm not sure the courts are going to buy that. Right. If the franchisor is a very much hands-off franchisor, I'm not sure that if somebody slips and falls in a restaurant, that the franchisor is going to be responsible. But if the franchisor, and I have a, I have clients that think they can stick their nose in the franchise's business, and I tell them, no, you can't. If they want to hire somebody, and you don't think that they're, well, you can't say don't hire them. You can't say, oh, I, I, you can't pay them this, and you can't pay them that. You want to stay out of that, totally away from that. Sure. At the end of the day, we know that anybody, I think you maybe told me this, but anybody could sue anybody for anything. So sure. there's a slip and fall in a restaurant. It's not stopping any customer from suing the franchisor. No. no. Now, the franchisor can certainly protect themselves with insurance, and, they, and I recommend that. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to do it. So let the insurance company duke it out and, and let them be responsible. Mm. But not every, not every franchisor emerging franchise can afford that. They're not, they're not cheap policies. Right. What about on this joint employer on the franchisee side? Do you think that some franchisees that are actually rooting for this because they feel like it's giving them additional protection? protection? Yeah. Mm, what do you maybe. think? Maybe. Uh, you know what? Yes and no. But they also know that, that this is really sticking your nose into their business and they don't want to do that either. I'm, I'm very curious on maybe some of the creative ways that franchisors have navigated the regulatory environment to stand out. Is there any, can you give me any examples maybe? Here's the problem. 
as you know, there are 15 states that require registration and 35 don't. Now, if you take the 15, you probably, I would say 12 of the 15 has made it very difficult for companies to get registered. New York, for example, can take four months for a new company to get registered. And that's ridiculous. Maryland is two months. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and you know, unfortunately, we're in a bad position, lawyers, I mean, because the clients think it's our fault. We're not the only, we're not the only company that's experiencing that problem. Right. It's across the board. And I don't know how to resolve it. It got worse when the, when the pandemic hit because they laid off people, they were short-handed. So it, it, it exacerbated the time and it hasn't changed. Well, with that said, what are your thoughts on a new franchisor or even emerging franchisor on their growth strategy? Do you prefer or do you suggest growing regionally or versus nationally? What What's your thoughts on the shotgun approach of everywhere versus regional? I've always said to clients, regional is better than, than trying the shotgun approach. Look, if you're based in Florida and you sell a franchise in the state of Washington, how are you going to get out there to visit with it? It'll cost you a fortune. Mm -hmm. You'll get there eventually. And, and and certainly now, there are a few states where I tell clients, don't bother. Don't go to California. Don't go to Washington. They're the worst states, okay, mm -hmm. regulatory wise. I mean, there are 35, 36 states you could say you could do pretty well. You could have a nice brand with 35 states involved. Right. No, that those two states in particular, uh, well, certainly California is making it such a challenge that it it's almost like the state is saying, we don't want you, <laughs> Mr. That's Franchisor. Right. That's exactly what they're saying. Yeah. We don't want franchising in our state. How can a new franchisor make their brand legally more appealing to franchisees? Is there something that a franchisor can do giving the franchisees more latitude to make it more appealing? And what would that what would that look like? I'm not sure they want to do that, the franchisors. They still want the franchisees to follow the system. Right. I'm not sure that there's much you could do to, to, to navigate that and make it more palatable. Franchisees know or should know that they're going into a system where they have to follow the rules. It's not like going into your own business by yourself as an independent you can do whatever you want. There's a, there's a system. There's a reason why every McDonald's is the same and why every Subway is the same. So there really is not much that a franchisee can do or that a franchisor would want them to do to deviate from the system. What about um, some of the, the legal troubles? What's, uh, what are typical when you see a new franchisor that gets in legal trouble? What is usually the reasons why? Well, the, the primary reason is they don't have an item IP and they tell people how much money they can make, <laughs> which is illegal. And, and if the franchisee doesn't make that kind of money, that they're going to turn around and say, you, you sold it to me fraudulently. Mm -hmm. That's that's always been, that's why, you know, companies are put, you're putting them out the item 19 and they can't argue with you. That's it. Those are the numbers. If you don't do those numbers, it's not our fault. We have an item 19. So we didn't tell you we can make more than that. Right. That's what, they, what the system is doing. So item 19 really is not only a sales tool, but it's, it's a legal protection for the franchisor. Sure. And, and the franchise agreement in itself is not something that you want to ever, as a franchisor, have to open up that file cabinet, right? No, you, you want to put in your drawer. Yeah. The other reason why franchisors wind up suing franchisees is because they don't follow the system. They, they, they do things, they, if it's a restaurant, they, they add the items to the menu that they're not supposed to, and they do things that, that they really can't do. So the franchisor has to be an enforcer as well. So what do you what would what do you tell clients when they know there's a franchisee that's 
not following the system and they've talked with them and like, how far do we keep pushing until we take legal action? Where, where's well, that line drawn? You, you try to talk to them. Look, if they're not happy, then the best thing to do is ask them, why don't you just sell the business? Right. We'll get, we'll find your buyer. Your buyer's out there. And if, if you're not happy, you don't like following a system, then sell the, sell, sell your location. It's very easy. We'll yeah. help you do that. But if they're not, and they're not following the system, and the franchise owner has to bite the bullet and send out a default notice. And if they don't cure the default, they're going to have to bring a lawsuit. One of the things I pride myself on in the 46 years, I haven't had too many franchisors get sued. Mm-hmm. Maybe three or four in all those years. And then most of them settle. But there are times when you don't have a choice. I'll give you an example. I have a client that the franchisee decided they were going to take the sign down and open up a competing business with a different name. Except in California, where you can do that, actually. That's another reason why you stay out of California. <laughs> yes. The franchisor had no choice but to stop them, and they did. Mm-hmm. Because you can't have a franchisee thumb their nose at you and say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care what you're assuming. Right. Well, it costs them a lot of money, and they're going to lose. Sure. And no matter who wins, it's a lose-lose situation. Legal fees are not cheap, that's for sure. Yeah, I I mean, we had an experience many, many years ago where it we didn't do anything wrong and a franchisee sold a new territory that he didn't own to a potential franchisee. And he said, I will buy it and then you pay me. And of course, the deal went south. We didn't know about any of this. And the potential franchisee sued us, the franchisor, and said we should have controlled them. Obviously, we didn't know that. And of course, it got thrown out. But who loses? Everybody. We lost. We cost a ton of legal fees. And Everybody loses. Yeah. Everybody. So you, you just don't know. There's, there's always a weird situation um, like that. But that's probably one of the things that I would imagine as a new emerging franchisor to try to prepare for is you don't want to... I'm not saying prepare for a lawsuit, but you really need to be prepared for enough dollars in your war chest, right? For legal. Oh, sure. sure. And, and, you know, sometimes franchisors are smart to take, if let's say the royalty is 6%, take a half a percent and stick it in a bank. But that'll build up enough that if you need to use it for that, you'll have it. Franchisors gotta be careful about overlapping territories and reselling the territory that they shouldn't have resold because that's gotten some of them into trouble. And I had a broker system do that. They sold the territory and then they sold another franchise, somebody, and it overlapped. And there was a lawsuit, a potential lawsuit until it got settled. You got to be very careful about it. And when you hire brokers, you got to make sure that when they, they, hire, they find a prospect and where they want to go, you better make sure that there's nobody in that territory. I'm not here to bash brokers. I think there's some great brokers out there, but this is the second time you mentioned broker group. So I, I want to, I want to pose this question. Do you find as a franchisor, if I'm going to use a broker group that there is a greater responsibility and how do I navigate that uh, with the broker groups to making sure that they're not saying things that they shouldn't say? You know, I tell new franchisors, I, I, you know, they ask one of the questions I'll ask is how do I sell the franchise? Right. And as you know, you've got basically three options. You can do it yourself which I don't recommend because you've never done it before. And that's a guarantee you'll say something you shouldn't say. Two, hire somebody in-house, which you eventually did, if I recall. Yep. Spend a lot of money, but at least you know exactly what they're going to say and, and you control them. Mm-hmm. 
Or the third way, which is what most new franchises will do, is hire a broker network. If you hire a reputable one, they're not going to go out and sell and say things they shouldn't say. Because if you don't hire a reputable one, they want to sell as many as they can sell, and they don't care what they say. you got to really vet whoever the broker system is. Get recommendations, how are they doing, how have they done, because they could get you into trouble. Sure. Now, usually the agreements that you, you sign with the broker network is an indemnification where if they go out and they say something and they get sued, they indemnify you. But you know what? These brokers don't have any money, so what's the good of the indemnification? They can't back it up with money. Right, and also not to confuse things for the audience, but we really have two things going on. We have the broker networks. The brokers are the ones that are just getting you the leads. They're talking to a candidate potentially, but then once that lead has to speak to a salesperson, you may be using the third leg, which is really that franchise sales organization, right? We refer to them as an FSO, and that's where you're, you've outsourced franchise sales. And to your point, now you have another layer of people that are talking to, it's almost like the game of telephone, right? You've got right. the broker, and now you have the FSO, and now we have to hope that everybody is saying the right thing, that nobody's coloring outside the lines. One thing a franchisor could do is when they interview the FSO or the brokers, Tell them to, to pretend I'm a franchisee. Give me your pitch. Mm -hmm. And let me hear exactly what you're going to tell somebody. I like that. Because if you don't, you don't know what they're going to say. I mean, it's almost like a script. Right. Give me a script. Let me see what it is that you're saying. And, and, and if it's something that I don't like, I'll make changes and you can ch you know, change it the way I want it to be changed. Most companies don't do that. Right. So there is an increased responsibility at the end of the day as the franchisor that these people are speaking on your behalf and you have to make sure that one, they have the the right dialogue that they're having with the candidates. And ultimately it comes down to me as the franchisor that I'm providing them with the resources, the material on how to sell it. That can pose a challenge. It did for me using the broker networks because they didn't understand my concept. You know, they would hear I9 Sports and we would tell them it's sports leagues for kids and we would explain it, but they would go on their own in certain ways on how they thought they should sell it, maybe not understanding. And I think broker networks can work phenomenal, especially for concepts that are very easy to understand. Like something in home services, they get it and they sell a ton of those franchises. But the ones where it's a gray area, where it takes a lot of communication or a lot of education, they may shy away from. Yeah. Yeah. On the legal side of things, though, we are responsible, though, as the franchisor on what the brokers and the FSOs are saying about our brand, right? Correct. It's the agency principle that we learn in law school that they're acting on your behalf. So what they say is basically what you said. What do you tell emerging franchisors that say, Harold, I got a call from a guy in the UK and I want a franchise now in, in the UK because he called me. I'm sure you get those those inquiries. All the time. I've even seen? had it where they haven't even sold one in the U.S. and they want to go into, mid into the Middle East <laughs> before they even sell one in the U.S. It's very attractive when somebody dangles a check for a quarter of a million or a half a million dollars to go somewhere out of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, look, you need to have some traction in the U.S. before you even think about going international. I mean, small brands that go international almost never make it. The franchisees over on the other side, they and they know that you're here and they're there and they can do what they want and how are you going to be there every day or how are you going to know what they're doing? It's impossible. It's very hard. International franchising is, is very sexy 
Mm-hmm. But it can get you into a lot of trouble. Right. To say, oh, we're in, you know, we're in two countries. We're in, we're in Europe. It sounds cold. Do you remember right. back during the Great Recession when so many franchisors were running to what they thought were greener pastures? That was like the big, the big buzzword at like franchise leadership and development conferences going overseas. Yeah, because is- they all had money. They had money where we in the U.S. couldn't do it because it was a recession. So, oh, they have oil money. Oh, right. that's great. Give me a check. I don't really care what happens. I think the other important advice we can give to franchisors is you need to decide when to grow internationally. Not it's because somebody called you from Ireland or Italy or something. That's not the reason to expand. Oh, that's 100% right. Yeah. You have to dictate. You dictate when you go there, not the other way around. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on, though, taking making the investment in getting your trademark approved overseas? It doesn't cost that much. You know, there's what they call the Madrid Protocol, which allows you to get filed in like 40 countries. Right. I mean, look, I remember years ago, Sbarro did not do that. And somebody in Spain took the name. And in order to get it back, they had to pay $100,000 to get the name back. Because outside the United States, you don't have to use the name. You can just file for it. Not like in the U.S. where you have to use the name before you can apply for a, a trademark. You can get it. You can get grants. It, it, it's rampant internationally to steal names. I think that is great advice. So for you uh, emerging franchisors, go ahead and get trademarked. In, the, in those countries, I think, you know, you can obviously get registered in the EU and it covers like 28 countries in one shot, yeah. but go ahead and do it. You don't, you want to be able to have access to your name when you can. We couldn't franchise in Australia, I9 Sports. There was an iSport company. Oh, really? And they, yeah, they, this is an interesting, interesting fact is that in Australia, we got declined because of iSport. And they allowed us to register I-9 Athletics. But get this, iSport filed a trademark in the United States and it got approved. Really? (laughs) Is that something? Wow, that's funny. The Australian government looked out for the Australian company, but the U.S. government did not look out for They could care less about my company. I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. It was the same exact company. That was the reason why we couldn't trademark that got approved here in this country. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Okay. I want to segue back to this uh, trends we're seeing in franchising and how it relates to really legally for you that you're seeing with clients. What are your thoughts on the impact all these PE firms are going to have on franchising long-term? We're seeing all these platforms that are being created. What are your thoughts? There's a lot. They're looking for franchise companies. You know, now, when, I, when a client comes to me, he, he, his whole idea is a five-year exit strategy. In five years, I want a private equity firm to buy me out. You know, it's no longer the IPO, the, you know, the public offering. That's mm-hmm. too expensive and nobody wants to do that. The PE firms, are, I mean, I've had clients, I mean, for the last five years, been brought out some numbers that are like telephone numbers, 65 million, 35 million, and they have maybe 100 units. But that's the goal of anybody who wants to go into franchising is to get bought out by a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. What they do with it after they buy it, that's a separate issue. Because the principles are basically gone. If they're there, they're there for a year and then they're gone. They don't care. So what happens to the brand? They want that they, the PE firms then resell it to strategic partners. Do you see that happening more in the future now where you're going to see PE firms start spinning off these companies? Because yeah. they're not... They're not doing it in masses right now. They're in acquisition no. mode still. Right. Eventually, that's what they're going to do. Because you know what? They're going to figure it out. They don't want to run anything. They don't want to be responsible. Let somebody else do it. So we'll bring, we'll sell it to a strategic partner. Let them run. 
So this is going to get a little dicey in the next maybe 10 years, huh? Yeah. Mm, but at the same time, I got to hand it to the PE firms, though, that are really professionalizing our industry. I mean, they're providing yeah. a lot of value with resources that is a newer franchisor you wouldn't have. So it's not all bad. But if the franchisor doesn't have the right unit economics, there's going to be a lot of spinoffs. Yep, absolutely. And that's going to happen because there are PE firms that have a lot of franchisors that don't have many units. So the proof of concept is not even there. So just no. the sheer failure rate is going to be fairly high in those cases. Yeah, sure. it's going to be enormous. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, you've been at this, like I said, 46 years, you told me. I think that is incredible. What do you think of maybe some of the key factors it really takes from an emerging franchise or to get to an established one? Patience. Don't think you're going to sell 100 the first year out. Okay. The average company sells six to seven the first year. Keep your expectations low and you won't be disappointed. If you think that you have the greatest thing since sliced bread and you're going to sell 50 the first year, you know, it's not going to happen. And don't be disappointed. Have some patience. It takes a couple of years. Yeah. Now, some some companies have very high concepts that people are throwing money at. There's one that's out of Utah called Crumble. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. We know Crumble Cookies, sure. It's got 300 in about five, four years or three years. That's ridiculous. You know, there comes a time when, when unless you are, are have a huge infrastructure, how are you going to service 300 franchisees in, in such a short period of time? It's very hard to do that. I mean, even when I did five guys, they grew, they didn't grow fast, mm -hmm. but eventually they got they ramp up. But in the beginning, they saw maybe ten or fifteen. But nobody remembers that they think, for example, five guys are overnight success. How and many years did it take? Five. How many years did it take for five guys to really get going? Oh, it took about five years before we really got got traction. But everybody thinks everyone is just, oh, they, you know, they were a success overnight. And then for the franchisors that sell a ton of units because it's getting, you know, it's sexy, it has the attraction of the public, but doesn't have the support services. That is a train wreck waiting to happen. That's right. The failure rate is huge for them. So one of the things that I see franchisors do is when they start selling two, three, five, ten packs, you're just setting yourself up for failure if you can't support those franchisees. That's right. And by the way, when you do that, if the franchisees don't have enough money, they'll never open the second, third, and fourth unit. Right. So now you're dead in the water. So now you have franchisees that own territory and they never opened up and you can't sell any franchises. You're stuck. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What do you think? Is that, is that, would you say, or are there other reasons why 84% of all franchisors never get to a hundred units? That's one of the reasons. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think? Run out of money. You know, it does take money to support a system and to grow it. You know, you can't do it on shoestring, and a lot right. of them don't have the money. I, it's interesting. I had just interviewed a, a franchisor recently, and he said to me he had the opportunity to talk to Fred DeLuca, and Fred gave him one piece of advice. Don't run out of money. Advice. <laughs> For sure. Okay, one more, one more stat that's baffling to me. I, I'm curious to know what your theory is on it. Why in the world, Harold, are we still at 4,000 franchisors? We were at that number 20 years ago. In other words, every year we have 400 new brands start up, 400 go out of business. Is it something else besides undercapitalization? Why are we not getting anywhere in the grand scheme of things? You know what? A lot of these companies that franchise, they they don't realize what's involved and they, they kind of bite off more than they can chew mm -hmm. and they, they run out of money. 
their their brand is not as good as they thought it was, and they can't or they can't sell them, they get very frustrated and they just pack it in. So it wasn't. I see that. Yeah, and and maybe also, do you see also that some franchisors are kind of half in, half out? They're not fully engaged in franchising. Those are the ones that don't make it because if you if you if you got all in, it becomes very difficult to be successful. Yeah. You got to remember what business you're really in. All right. So this is kind of a loaded question for you. And I know over 46 years, you've probably had a lot of surprises, but has there, what's been one of your bigger surprises in franchising over the course of your career? Well, you know what? I I really was surprised that Five Guys did as well as it did. You know, it created created a concept that nobody knew about, gourmet burgers. Who ever heard of everybody? McDonald's, Burger King, you know, the usual garbage. Right. Who ever thought a gourmet burger would be as successful as they have been? And now there must be 20 competitors. So that was a big surprise for me. Did you? I uh, thought they would do well. Did you do the early work with them from the beginning? Oh, yeah. I, I, I started their friend. I, was, I did their first step, UFOC. UFOC? <laughs> yeah. So you just thought, okay, these guys are doing this gourmet burger thing, and, you know, they're going to have a nice little business. Yeah. Who's gonna, wait. And who's going to spend $7 for a burger, right? <laughs> well... They did it. Why did they succeed to the level that they did? I guess people were tired of the garbage that McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's were serving. Right. And they didn't mind spending the money to get something that was really quality. At the end of the day, quality always wins. Yeah. Well, either quality or you better be quick. Okay, you know, recently, this acai bowl, you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Which company? It's called, well, it's a client like Fireball. Okay. Started out with three, and then they grew to a hundred, and that's when they sold out to a private equity firm. Right. And I'm saying to myself, it's not healthy. What do you know who they cater to? The kids. Gen Z. Yeah, under third. You don't see any seniors in those places. (laughs) Right, right. Yep, they know who the target audience is. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Um, Harold, I can, I can do this. I can do this for hours with you though. I want to make sure I I get this out. If somebody's interested in working with you, um, how can they, how can they get more information? Go to our website, bettyoliana.com. There's a form to fill out. I get all the links. That's all I'm doing now. I'm the chief marketing officer. Oh, nice. Well, I'm I'm selling deals. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) That's great. Well, with that said, I'm going to, I always finish up with this thing I call the tip jar because the franchise community is so generous. This has been a whole almost hour of stuffing the tip jar with great advice. But if you were going to give a, a one more piece of advice to an aspiring franchisor, what would you tell them? Make sure you have enough money. Make sure you have a concept that's fairly unique and make sure you are dedicated to grow the franchise and not make the people. You gotta, don't don't work in your business. Work on your business. That was very emith revisited, right? Right. Absolutely, Harold. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You've done such a great job. I feel very blessed that I started with you. Oh, thank it's you. Great. Thank you, Harold. All right, I'll see you soon. Okay, man. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands podcast. For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host Frank Fumi, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. 
Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its hosts do not offer professional advice or endorsements, and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.